To short reverse shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edmund Davis, and joining me, as always, through the miracle of satellite technology, is Matt Risby. Hi, Matt. How's it going? Mm, yeah, good, man. Very nearly missed this episode by falling asleep, mm-hmm. um, which is one of the unfortunate quirks of recording it at silly o'clock, um, mm. um, which is one of the unfortunate quirks of you moving to America, Ed. Please move back home. <laughs> or to, or to a, or a, you can live in South Africa if you want. It's the same time zone. I don't mind. <laughs> yeah, like there's a, there's a lot of options for just GMT, or you know, I could move to the south of France or something. That'd be yeah, quite nice. P- Portugal's nice. We could do like a kind of sideways style episode where we just kind of rove around kind of the south of France and vineyards and things, uh, doing podcasts about um, about sideways in the trip. Mm, then. You know, maybe meeting up with Matthew Good and Matthew Reese and getting into a fight because uh, they'll probably be shooting the the wine show at that point. Are they still doing that? I think so. I think it's popular. Or uh, people seem to get excited about it when promos of it debut on Twitter, which I know is not quite the same thing. But mm. um, I think it's it certainly seems to be an ongoing concern still. And Matthew Reese obviously has a bit more time on his hands now the Americans has finished. If you... If you are one of our dozens of listeners who listens to this for, you know, insight, Ed saying, uh, I think it's popular. (laughs) That's about as on the edge as we can be. Mm. Yeah, we're aware this is a thing. (laughs) It's like SoundCloud rappers. I know that they exist and I know that there are a lot of them and they all have names like XVagel7, but... I couldn't name any of their music, except for, like, I think it's Post Malone, a SoundCloud rapper that went mainstream. Post Malone, uh, I've heard the name, I've seen it written down, I wouldn't know. I only just mm-hmm. learned who, uh, oh, what's that guy, he's a chef as well as a as a rapper. <laughs> oh, God, what's his name now? God, we know. sound like a couple of dads. <laughs> um, yeah, he's a person, um, yeah. and he raps, and he cooks, and he cooks, he likes cooking. That's what I know, and he, he doesn't just cook up fat beets, Ed. Mm. He uh, he he cooks like literally cooks in the kitchen. I've forgotten his name. I'm not even going to bother looking it up. Um, so you, because... you just learned him, learned his name, but yeah. Or in... someone told me, and the inf- like, you know, when someone tells you something, you're like, that's interesting, and then as soon as you turned around, the information is gone from mm. <laughs> from your brain. It's just out there, like you know, I've got no room for this. I've got no use for it immediately, so it's done. Is um, it John Favreau preparing for Chef Two? Mm, John Favreau biting the hand that feeds uh, the people <laughs> who stunted his rap career, and uh, he decided to hit back at them the way he hit back at the uh, the studio execs for not make, letting him make Iron Man two the way he wanted it. Mm. Yeah, it seems a bit churlish. Yeah, I mean, I still quite like Chef, but yeah, I did. I think the fact that he then immediately went back to making massive blockbusters for Disney does kind of undercut its point. Mm, yeah, Although, like, at his little tantrum, and then they let him uh, let him make another like $500 million blockbuster. Mm. Although I guess the fact that he seems very happy with how that went and seemed to really enjoy it means he probably did get to make The Jungle Book on his own terms. But yeah, it, it was really... It's, it's a really strange turnaround there. It's like that... The only one that I can think of as, as strange would be something like, you know... DJ Danger Mouse getting sued by EMI and then four years later making a Gorillaz album. You know, like, that was a that was a pretty big turnaround in terms of being like, yeah, fuck you. Hi, yes, I'd like a job. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. It's weird, isn't it? It's like, it, it seemed to be a film that was probably so innocuous mm. that the studio heads and the people, the, the, the big wigs that were, he was poking fun at, they probably didn't even realise that they were just like, oh, have you been off shooting that indie? He was like, oh, yeah, yeah. It was called Chef. It was about a chef who's not allowed full creative control of his projects and has to go you know, off the beaten track to kind of re-engage with what it was that made him really fall in love with cooking, cooking in the first place. And they were like, oh, that sounds interesting. Here's $200 million. <laughs> yeah, or or they were like, oh, did you did you see that? And they just said, yes, I did see your movie. And obviously they haven't because executives <laughs> don't watch movies, by and large. That's, they've just been like, oh, yeah, that did well. Mm. Sure, why not? We'll give you money. Yeah, what kind of chef was he? Was he a superhero chef? What kind of food truck was it? Was it a time travelling food truck? <laughs> yeah. Was it all on a green screen? Mm. Just just in different places around the country? Yeah, yeah. It could have been actually. I wasn't paying that much attention. There's a bit where he goes to New Orleans, isn't there? And he he, he cooks like uh, some traditional kind of Louisiana fare, uh, mm. which is all right. I wonder if he can. I reckon he could probably cook. Yeah, I should you think so. I mean, I'm not. No offense, but he's a big guy. Mm-hmm. Never trust yeah. a thin chef. Exactly. Yeah, I know that Robert Rodriguez likes to cook because on his DVDs he would include a ten-minute film score, which were always quite informative, if not you know reflective of the quality of the man's work. Um, mm-hmm. But also, he started doing like a ten-minute cooking school where he'd make some traditional Mexican dishes, and I was like, you know, if you put all this energy <laughs> into making mm-hmm. your films better, it'd be amazing. Yeah, like Robert Rodriguez is probably the person who has like the greatest gulf between how much I like what they stand for and how much I like their work. Like I do like a lot of his movies, but so much of them, so many of them, certainly in recent years, just feel so com- like completely tossed off and like mm. he didn't live up to whatever potential he had when you know El Mariachi came out and he seemed like this real bold new vision or whatever. Mm. Uh, since then, it's just been gone. He's been kind of disappointing. But when you hear him talk about, you know, all of the stuff he's been doing, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, setting up his own TV network and trying to bolster Mexican and Mexican American representation in TV through that and things like that, you think, oh, good on you, Robert. But why, why don't you make good things? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like I'm going to strike out, and you know, I can see the inefficiency. And the wastefulness of Hollywood, and I'm going to do things my own way, on my own. And he's just done that, and which is to be commended, let's be honest. Mm. But he, he's just done it every bit as bad as if he had Hollywood's full backing yeah. uh, and someone else was footing the bill. I saw Spy Kids 3 on a <laughs> television with motion smoothing turned on, oh. and it could have been one of the worst uh, uh, kind of 80 minutes of my life. Yeah, incredibly smoothed out Sylvester Stallone face. Can't, mm. can't be... A particularly great visual. Yeah, and it makes all of the special effects look like they are for mm. adver- adverts for show on, shows on Nickelodeon or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I imagine Shark Girl and Lava Boy probably doesn't hold up particularly well either. But then again, it didn't hold up like two days after it came out. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. We've taken a real side turn uh, down <laughs> to just kind of kicking Robert Rodriguez for no reason. Completely unprompted. Yeah, let's uh, let's circle back. I mentioned obviously Matthew Reese there. Matthew Reese was nominated this week for an Emmy for Best Actor in a Drama for his work on the final season of The Americans. Uh, and so we'll get into the news by talking about the Emmy nominations themselves, which by and large seemed to 
only really anger people who were very, very big fans of Twin Peaks The Return because it didn't get nominated for Best Miniseries. Karl McLaughlin didn't get nominated for Best Actor. And it largely got ignored in most of the major categories. Like, mm-hmm. probably the biggest one it got nominated for would have been Director for David Lynch for directing the eighth episode, which is, like, already canonised as one of the great episodes of television. Uh, and that's fine, although it, within the ecosystem of the Emmys, like, Director is not that high profile or it's not like best director is like the second most important oscar like best director for work on a mini series emmy is you know very mid-tier as far as awards go uh, and yeah a lot of people are very annoyed about this although as a lot of people pointed out a lot of the people who seem really annoyed that it didn't get nominated for emmys are a lot of the same people who were, were screaming about how it was one of the best movies of last year so uh, some people just are never going to be happy um mm. but as someone who really loved the return and anyone who wants proof of that can go listen to the seven hour episode i did with emily benita about it only slight exaggeration where we talked about it last year but you know i, I really loved the return but uh i'm not that fussed about it not being recognized by the emmys just because i don't necessarily think that it not being nominated for emmys is going to hurt anyone's career <laughs> like it's not going to hurt david lynch's career he's not going to have trouble making getting projects made Carl McLaughlin's not going to be lacking for work even though he should have been nominated for his performance or his performances in that series you know Laura Dern got nominated for the tale so she's doing all right it's just more a sense of like yeah it would have been nice but for me I I don't feel like it was the sort of show that was gonna live or die on whether or not it got nominated for Emmys Mm, yeah it was still holding out for those Oscars (laughs) Uh, or Grammys or Tonys or whatever people seem to want to believe it is. Uh, You know, clearly, you know, a work of television. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, uh, I kind of was astounded to see Game of Thrones was leading the nominations again. And it was on so long ago that I always forget that it happened. And I was Mm. like, oh, was there a series of that this year? Even though I obviously watched it, but it was a long time ago. So they have quite big windows for this thing. Yeah, and also it's kind of strange because I kind of feel like it was one of the weaker seasons. But I guess it's such a it's such a big show that it kind of would have been crazy for them not to nominate it at this mm. point. Like whether or not it wins. Yeah, what yeah. else picked up a lot of awards? I heard Handmaid's the good. The good oh, okay, the good place. Uh, Ted Danson got nominated. I saw that pop up. Yes, that was pretty much the only award that I think it got, uh, or like one of only a handful, maybe, but uh, certainly a very welcome one because uh, The Good Place is great, and he's a large part of, of certainly this second season. He was so central to making the show good as he became more of an engaged character in the lives of everyone else, to talk about it as broadly, as, as, as blandly as possible, so as not to spoil it for anyone. But, like, yeah, he... he so So much of this second season was about, you know, characters learning the true nature of things and being able to actually have conversations with each other that they were that weren't necessarily across purposes that i feel like he was a lot more engaged as a character this time uh compared to the first season not that he wasn't great on the first season but i really felt like it gave him the opportunity this year to do a lot more and more interesting work mm. uh, is it the emmys is like something you don't really see in in Britain is not something that's kind of like people mention it in like the kind of specialist trade news and stuff like that, but it's not screened or anything. And we don't get reports about it on the news. Is it like the Grammys where there is literally like fifteen hundred categories? Oh yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. So much so that there's an entire separate 
ceremony that happens without any cameras present or, or it's not televised you know it's it's filmed but they only show clips of it during the main emmys where they give out all of the arts emmys you know so which is basically all of the below the line stuff that doesn't necessarily feature famous people right so a bunch of the emmys will get handed out prior to the main show and then the main show they'll hand up like 20 or something which uh, i guess also makes it a lot more manageable on the you know for for TV audiences and the live audience because it would be quite a lot to have to sit through and give out all of like the editing for reality TV, you know, which is like, you know, I'm not slating people who edit reality TV shows. That's a very difficult job because Mm -hmm. you have a lot of material to work with and you can obviously produce great work, you know, like uh, Queer Eye would be nothing without, you know, people being edited to edit that down into an hour of 40 something tear inducing minutes. But, you know, like, there's so many editing prizes and so many subcategories that if you were to hand them all out, those shows would be ungodly long. Mm. It was good to see uh, Queer Eye get its nomination, if only for that short video we saw of Jonathan Van Ness Mm. hearing that he's got two Emmy nominations, one for Queer Eye and the other one for Game of Thrones, and and it being uh, a scene of unbridled joy, uh, which, which is nice to see that they're... The show, which um, is seemingly free of uh, cynicism and an entirely mm. sincere enterprise, um, appears to very much be that way behind the scenes. Yeah, totally. It was uh, yeah, really joyful. He obviously seems like an incredibly uh, wonderful human being. And yeah, any, anything good happening to Jonathan Van Ness is a, is a good thing in my book. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Is Game, Game of Thrones, is, is that a podcast or is that like a web series? I believe it's, a, it's a, like a Funny or Die web series. Oh, okay. Um, I've seen clips. I've never actually seen the whole thing, but I didn't know if they were um, bits that were kind of promos for the podcast or whatever. I kind of uh, didn't know what it was, but I'm I'm certainly into it if it's, uh, if it's a web series. Mm. And in terms of web series, I also thought it was really great to see that uh, prolific and brilliant tweeter and me- a good place writer Megan Amran got an Emmy for a web short she did called an emmy for megan <laughs> mm. which i thought was uh was very very funny that she has gone to great lengths to mount this campaign to get herself nominated for an emmy and it uh, genuinely worked mm. it's emmy inception is what that yeah. is yeah uh and then also like it was fun it's good seeing shows like atlanta being recognized again um and also it's kind of fun that both Donald Glover and Bill Hader both achieved the same thing, which is being nominated for Best Lead Actor, Writing and Directing for Atlanta and Barry, respectively, which uh, is something that is kind of rare, you know, a rare thing to achieve. Uh, I think the only other person, unfortunately, would be like someone like a Louis C.K. So it's kind of it. So it's nice to see two people who are who aren't uh, at least as far as we know, dreadful being recognised for their kind of singular work and, and again, you know, kind of seeing this strain of more tourist television being recognised as, uh, as a viable way to make TV uh, as opposed to, you know, the, the writer room mm. uh, approach, which obviously has its own value. Mm. It was nice to see um, Star Wars Rebels got a few nominations at the end. I always like to see, you know, when a show ends... Mm. Um, I don't know whether they're kind of token nominations to say, oh, well done for all your hard work, or whether it's kind of like that final bit of like, oh, this actually was quite good. 
because those last two seasons of Rebels were, were very strong um, yeah. and kind of moved away from being a kind of bright and breezy kids show, which it still was, um, to something which, uh, well, was just a bit, like a bit more, which I always like when something turns out to have a bit more substance. Mm, yeah, totally. And I think that's also something you see again with the with the Americans, which was a show that what didn't uh, lack for plaudits, you know, mm-hmm. like it was critically acclaimed for its entire run, but never seemed to get that much attention at the Emmys. So for it to get uh, a couple of nominations right at the end there for uh, Kerry Russell and Matthew Reese is, is quite nice. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if either of them manages to join like John Hamm and Kyle Chandler in the club of people who won Emmys for the very last season of their show, uh, almost as kind of a, a mere corporate being like, yeah, you were pretty good all along. So mm. here you go. The lifetime achievement of TV awards, I guess, for like five series. Just today, we kind of missed you all this time. We kind of got this wrong. Here's the uh, here's the here's the nomination. It's the uh, the return of the king factor. Hmm. Yeah. Totally. Uh, and then also, it was kind of it's in terms of maybe slight shifts you know uh, the modern family not being nominated for best comedy for the first time in a very long time is kind of notable notable obviously that show's been on the air for 10 years at this point mm-hmm. so it kind of had to fall out of favor at some favor at some point but uh, it's interesting seeing that it it would have been pretty much the only network show on there other than blackish which also got nominated for best comedy everything else is cable or streaming which i think is maybe indicative of how the industry has changed over the last decade or so. Mm, it's uh, shifting. It's uh, now, you know, in the future, there'll be the Emmys will be streamed uh, on, you know, IKEA's website, possibly. <laughs> um, yeah, who knows where, where it will go? Yeah. In other news, and this is kind of picking up on a story that we covered last week. After much backlash, Scarlett Johansson has dropped out of production of the movie Rub and Tug, which, for people who didn't hear last week's episode, uh, it was a movie about a trans man named uh, Dante Tex Gill who ran a bunch of massage parlours in Pittsburgh, I want to say, in the 70s and 80s, and Scarlett Johansson was going to play him, and this obviously got a lot of pushback from you know actual trans actors in Hollywood and uh, and people online who you know, pointed out that this is a continuation of a very bad trend of cis actors being brought in to play trans characters and essentially, even if unintentionally, but uh, continuing the idea that, you know, trans people are in some way just people, like, doing dress-up or whatever and and kind of negating their identities. And a lot of people were like, oh, it's just people complaining online, this will not change anything. Uh, And then she listened to the backlash and has dropped out which i think is good uh, although a lot of people have pointed out that she it's her production company that's behind the movie so if she wanted to she could just like can the whole thing and just kind of wash her hands of it but if she does continue to produce it and they actually move forward and try and cast a trans man in the lead role i think that'd be far and away the best outcome of this whole situation Mm, yeah, I saw there was um, a lot of people kind of um, trying to fight her corner. I saw mm. uh, Justine Bateman had tweeted saying, you know, well done, reactionary internet people. You've just, you know, ruined a project that, you know, could have been great, could have, like, shed a spotlight on, 
you know, trans issues. No one, no, like, be realistic. No one, um, no trans actor is going to have the uh, pull that Scarlett Johansson has to get this film made. So, yeah, you're kind of, uh, uh, kind of responsible for, for kind of, you know, ruining this, what could have been great. But then that kind of completely ignores the fact that Scarlett Johansson could well have used her star power and clout to cast a trans actor and, mm. you know, you know, do it appropriately and, you know, played a, a supporting role, you know, got more of her famous friends in to do something important because it's that whole argument of like, well, we can't cast an actor, we can't cast a trans actor in this role because there aren't any trans actors in the role. Well, just think about that statement that mm. you've just made because that's the reason it's the snake eating its own tail. It's ridiculous. Like, you know, I, I kind of, on one hand, uh, I kind of would like to see the project happen, but there's just something about the way that it's been approached in such a tone deaf manner that I kind of almost hope it happens with anyone else, but, mm. uh, but the, the people who are responsible for it in this instance. Yeah. I mean, for me, the biggest problem now is that it's still meant to be directed by Rupert Sanders, who's not got a great track record. Uh, and so like the question of like, Oh, it could have been great. It's like, could it though? Like, even if, uh, you know, they had cast a trans actor, initially like you probably need someone who's genuinely like a good director and maybe is able to you know handle the complexities of that story with you know genuine depthness and understanding and mm. you know we've not really got much proof so far that rupert sanders is is that director you're right in in terms of like if you look at someone like Brad Pitt, who produces a lot of movies and sometimes takes like a small role in them, but like uh, in 12 Years a Slave, which is a movie mm. that he produced and which uh, probably would not have been made or at least not made in the same way if he hadn't, you know, thrown his clout behind it and, you know, allowed himself to be cast as the one nice white person in it. But, mm. you know, like it, that, I think to me, seems like the more... Uh, responsible use of star power and clout of basically saying you know i want this project to get made you know in whatever capacity it is but agreeing then to let maybe people who have a genuine understanding of those stories letting them tell it you know and using your ability to get it made as opposed to just being like i can do this mm. like i'm sure i i'm sure i can put, make this movie work and it's like mm, probably probably not yeah it it there's I'm sure it's not this. I really hope it's not this, but it's very hard to look at the reasons that Scarlett Hansen would want to do this in the way that she wanted to do it with the people that she wanted to do it that wasn't, I'd like some acclaim. Yeah, and certainly the response that came out after the, the wave of, the initial wave of backlash of saying, you know, yeah, you know, I address your concerns to like Jeffrey Tambor and Jared Leto and... Uh, Felicity Huffman's agents. It's like, oh, so basically, what you you seem to be saying is it's okay for me to do this because they did it, and also they got lots of good reviews for it. So therefore, it, it can't have been wrong mm. for them to do it, and therefore can't be wrong for me to do it. It's like, no, it was also wrong for them to do it. It's just that maybe people weren't as sensitive to the issues in play as they are now. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't wrong then. Yeah. Yeah. Just let everyone just stop and think about what they're doing, please. Mm. Yeah, there's enough intentional pain being caused to marginalised communities in America at the moment. Let's not have people blundering in and causing it 
just uh, for their own, I don't know, self-aggrandizement. Mm. And let's, let's not, we've mentioned this kind of several times before on the show that, you know, films aren't just made someone says, hey, have you got a camera next weekend? Let's bang this film out. No, they're planned mm. for, for, for months and years in advance. So this has been in development for a long time. So they had the time to think about, right, guys, meeting. Do we think that anyone might have a problem with this? Oh, mm. no. Okay, cool. It's, it's literally like they, they didn't just decide to do the film last weekend and announced it. You know, they've known this information and it's, you know, they've got to wise up. They've got to do better. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and it's certainly not going to hurt Scarlett Johansson's career. As some people seem to think it would. There was one person who was saying, like, you did it, fucking bullies, let her act or something. Someone tweeted out and then, like, it's just like, she's go- she's going to have plenty of work lined up, including, of course, on the forthcoming Black Widow movie, which yep. announced this week that there's going to be, uh, that they've chosen a director for it, Kate Shortland, who previously directed a bunch of movies that I have vaguely heard of, like Berlin Syndrome, which got a lot of good reviews last year, and Law from a couple of years ago, mm. Somersault. So she's someone who has uh, kind of a lot of uh, indie movie cred. Mm. Which I've, seen, seems... I've seen Somersault. Somersault mm. is a very dreamy indie, not the kind of film that you'd think, oh, instantly give give this person $150 million. But as we know, that doesn't matter. You should just pick the mm. people who make good, distinct, interesting movies. It doesn't matter. They're still just movies. But yeah. uh, The Berlin Syndrome and Law, I have heard a lot of excellent things about. And just yes. a heads up, Berlin uh, Syndrome is on Amazon Prime, if you are oh, interested. Cool. But yeah, like you say, it doesn't matter that she's made movies that don't like scream, make a a superhero movie because you could say that about you know john watts making the spider-man movie from last year where you know previously his the, the movie he made immediately before that was an incredibly low budget movie with two kids in a car being chased by kevin bacon mm. uh, and nothing about that screams this guy could direct a spider-man so yeah like as ever it's nothing to do with the kinds of movies people make it's whether or not they're good at making movies that's the, the bottom line but uh, it's good to see that marvel have committed to, to to finally hiring a woman to direct a, a movie solo because obviously the Captain Marvel is also being direct, co-directed by a woman. It's uh, Valerie Farris, is that right? No, it's uh, no. Um, oh, Anna, Boden. Anna Boden and Ryan Fleck, yeah. Yeah, yeah Anna Boden and Ryan Fleck. Like, uh, I think it's going to be one of the two like <laughs> husband and wife directing team that have been around for ages. But yeah, so so it's good that they are they are doing that. Also kind of feels like something that should have been done a while ago because they've been talking about making a Black Widow movie since at least 2010. Mm. Because as soon as the character debuted in Iron Man 2, like everyone was saying, oh, cool. So I guess she's getting a movie at some point. And Kevin Feige's been like, sure, someday. Mm. And that seems to be, this is kind of an ever so slight, advance on that in that they've they've hired someone to direct it but also not necessarily given a clear sense of when that movie will see the live day mm. it's weird isn't it the the wonder woman's successful and now mm. you know within a year there's a black widow movie in production mm. um it's kind of weird I, I can't see a connection between those two things no no not at all uh certainly not Cowardice. <laughs> <laughs> it, or cynicism. Yeah. Or, yeah. That is the Hollywood way. Cowardice and cynicism. Yeah. And money. Uh, 
I've noticed mm. that I've been saying the word money like John Mulaney like for weeks now. <laughs> um, like I had to fill the till up at work the other day and I said, who's got the bag of money? <laughs> and everyone was like, why are you saying it weird? And I was like, I can't be bothered to explain, but $120,000. Um, and yet again, people were like completely, I was like, do listen to my podcast. I recommended it like weeks ago. And they're like, you've got a podcast? What? Anyway, diversion. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, but no, everyone should uh, listen to and impersonate John Mulaney. He has the best way of speaking. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the, again, I guess uh, the slightly sadder story of money. Uh, it was announced this week, or uh, it was kind of known like several weeks ago. But uh, the sites involved certainly made their opinions known a bit more firmly. But you know, a bunch of the movies owned as part of the Gizmodo. Uh, network, you know, kind of a lot of the the sites that used to previously part of the Gorka network are up for sale because uh, Univision, who own them, uh, just don't know how to make money off of that, uh, off of them anymore. So you've got show, uh, sites like, I believe, Jezebel's on there. And certainly in terms of pop culture currency, you know, two, two of the big, big uh, sites, certainly for me over the last couple of decades, The Onion and The AV Club. And, you know, this, the, the AV Club put up a a post just basically saying we are for sale and dared Elon Musk to buy them because people said that he couldn't, uh, which I thought was very funny, but also made me feel very, very sad because uh, I love the AV club. I think it's current form. The current format they've gone for is a nightmare. Uh, and that I miss their old design that was readable and easy to follow, but they've done some of my favorite pop culture writing of the last couple of, uh, you know, the last decade or so, like reading their, uh, TV recaps made me want to get into, you know, blogging and writing, and you know they were a big insp- inspiration for me. And uh, the Onion, of course, is an American institution, so it's uh, a real bummer that those sites are in a really precarious p- position because a company bought them and can't figure out how to make them profitable, mm. even though they are both wildly popular. Yeah, the AV Club is certainly one for me. Um, whenever. Game of Thrones is on or any big show or Breaking Bad, whatever, I'll always and often allowed to my wife read the recaps um, and go through the things you might have missed or the little the little kind of bits. It has always been populated by the best kind of writing people. Mm. Um, and like it's it's normally the way that you have a like a website and you know their their music stuff's good but the film stuff sucks or whatever. But it's all yeah. good. Even like their video game stuff's good. Um, and, uh, yeah, I have gone on it less since the redesign, um, mm. especially because, uh, on your phone, it's awful, uh, yeah. on the desktop, it's a bit better, but like stuff like Podmas has turned me on to so many like podcasts, mm. um, like the whole kind of, uh, Marin comedy, bang, bang, never not funny. That whole swathe of podcasts is stuff that I just stumbled across on a website and I was like, comedy, bang, bang, who are these people? No idea. I listened mm. to one episode and then that was the Rosetta Stone um, to understanding like a whole, not even just uh, yeah, like comedy podcast, but uh, comedy full stop. And then, you know, two years later, I'm at the UCB in LA watching a show because I know that's a place where all these people come from. And, you know, that's the thing that, and I'm there watching. Yeah, it's, it's, it sucks that it's, it's uh, happening. I kind of, it's an, almost inevitable that, websites and stuff like this are going to be like 
lost in the in the mix somewhere. I think in five years mm-hmm. the internet's going to be a very different place, and writing on the internet's going to be a very different place. Um, what that, how it's modelled and how it works out, I've got no idea. Um, but the AV Club, I really hope it's not the uh, the canary in the coal mine uh, for the state of things and where it's going to go. Um, the Onion and Jezebel, I'm pretty sure we'll talk about next week. Uh, mm. on our on our episode that we've got coming up, which will be very exciting. Um, but yeah, the AV Club and just good cultural criticism in general. Um, when you can't get paid to do it, suddenly the quality is going to go down. Mm. Um, and you know, I, you know, I don't want to be hard on people who you know write on the internet for for you know just for the love of it, who do it a lot but don't get paid for it. They have other jobs or whatever, you know absolutely amazing writing on um uh, on on pop culture can be found in that realm um but unfortunately it just gets lumped in with all the shit mm. which is a real yeah. shame and you know the stuff that the av is 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 your filter the av club is your filter and uh yeah it's gonna it's gonna suck if no one bails it out yeah, I think uh, like the idea of it as a filter is really important because I feel like its audience really grew around about the time that just the amount of TV and stuff that's out there grew because it felt like it was one of the only places that really was keeping up with all of the good stuff that was there and now that's literally impossible. But they still... Uh, and, then, and then I think at some point they started cutting back on that and started really focusing on, like, what are the big shows? Which is a shame, really, because, you know... Uh, yeah, we, we I mentioned it briefly earlier, but the reason that I started watching Friday Night Lights was partly because of the the fervor of the passion for it on the AV Club, and that was a show that didn't get very good viewers, and technically wasn't on TV for like its last three seasons, or at least not in the uh, traditional sense. And yeah, and they would write about Tiny Shows Rectify, like that was mm-hmm. a show that I discovered because. Uh, I think Todd Vanderwerf was writing about it on the AV Club, and I was like, oh, this show sounds great. <laughs> and then, like, watching it and thinking, oh, yeah, this is a, a great show with a very, very tiny audience, but uh, being turned onto it by the AV Club and so much of their uh, of their writing has done that for me over the years. And, and also, I think it's a, it's a site with a tangible legacy in that you look around at writers who now write for other sites or who write who are editors for other sites there are so many people who were av club alums like people who work now for variety and things like that who started you know work writing reviews and recaps uh, and then going on to things like vox obviously and the verge and all these other sites that are quite popular now and specialized and you can really see the imprint of that site on all these people who started there and then, you know, went out into the broader world and took his ethos elsewhere. Uh, yeah. And I think I would hope that someone picks them, the onion and click hole up because, you know, between them, they've, they've do very different work, but, uh, it's all, all pretty fantastic. And I think having people in charge, who know what they have and don't force them to use an utterly terrifying, uh, commenting uh, system and presentational format could go a long way to, you know, maybe restoring it to some of its former glory. Mm, yeah, we kind of need a, some kind of resurgence, um, especially with this kind of ongoing quote-unquote culture war that we have um, mm. uh, that appears to be uh, 
the force for good losing ground to uh, the four chans of the world and you mm. know the awfulness that that kind of exists um, to marginalise people's voices and 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 kind of uh, you know, ruin people's lives basically. Mm. So uh, now more than ever we need it. Yeah, totally. Kind of going into I think maybe slightly more positive territory although at the very least maybe more nostalgic territory mm. our main topic this week is baseball movies uh in, and baseball culture uh inspired by the fact that it's the all-star game in a couple of days and i'm excited about that as, as someone who has got into baseball a lot since moving over to the u.s because it's on tv here you know mm. it's very hard to be into baseball uh in the uk as i'm sure you can attest matt yes but but also, you know, it's uh, I've, I've just coincidentally been listening to and watching a, bunch, a lot of baseball-related stuff. I started listening to Rhea Butcher's podcast, Three Swings, which is a really good baseball and much more besides podcast that I've been really, really, enjo- really enjoying. I started watching the comedy series Brockmire with Hank Azaria, which is very steeped in baseball culture uh, as a mythology. And it just feels like baseball as this kind of mythic symbol of and you know of america and the fact that it's something that has been has existed for such a long time and you can really see it as a marker of a lot of you know different societal upheavals in american history over that time uh it's it's kind of a very rich vein and, and it's really interesting to think how many great movies have been made about it or that tangentially use it compared to like other like primarily american sports or even just sports worldwide which uh, where like you maybe get one or two good movies based around that sport uh whereas like with baseball there's like a just a litany of of movies that are super good about that one specific sport mm, and it's uh interesting to, to to kind of think about in the sense that yeah you say well there's a good American football movie or a good ice hockey movie, the good baseball movies are just good movies. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like they are, they stand on their own and it's the only sport which consistently manages to mine quality drama comedy out of its subject. And I think it's purely down to the point that, that like you said, it is part of the American fabric. It mm. is as nearly as old as kind of America and well give or take 100 years but yeah who's counting and the fact that baseball itself has such a rich history of weirdos and <laughs> you know braggards and you know just interesting characters who have played the game and yeah. you know interesting situations um that have happened and you know has also been used as a backdrop for so many political things that it is you know a well that they can keep going back to yeah i mean you really see that and i think rather than jump into uh dramatic features i think you know the, the the best place to start with baseball as like a social document even uh would obviously be like ken burns's baseball mm. which is uh certainly was the thing that really turned me on to the sport as you know representative of you know different changes in america over time and as being a thing that has been such a constant for such a, a long stretch and i think that uh, a large part of that of what's really appealing about that documentary is that it does place the, the outsized personalities and the crazy crazy games and things into the broader context of 
and this is what World War Two meant for baseball. You know, this is what the Vietnam War meant for all of these uh, the, the people who are partaking in it. Or you know, this is why Jackie Robinson was so important and what the desegregation of baseball meant in terms of the broader civil rights struggle and things like that. And you know, and then you know, in the the slightly less good follow-up episodes the the tenth inning i think is the, the they're just extra episode. innings i think and they do like three i think yeah where they're talking about uh they have like keith oldman talking about you know post 9-11 walking around the streets of new york just completely shell-shocked and someone walking up to him and just asking him who he thinks is going to win the world series uh and just like the idea that uh, uh baseball is this thing that is just in the background of american life or, or at least you know for up until you know, the, certainly up until the 90s, it was certainly like a major part of American life. And it's it's maybe uh, been eclipsed a little bit by football and ba- basketball in recent years. Um, certainly in the television era, those have made more ground on it. But it still remains like a really popular sport, which, like like you say, serves as a backdrop for a lot of great stories. Mm. I mean... I don't want to say that, you know, if you want to listen to this podcast, your required reading is 13 hours of a documentary <laughs> about baseball, but it would be a great place to start. And also, you know, to, to kind of hammer home the point, Ken Burns makes films in the series called The American Experience for PBS. And, you know, The American Experience is Prohibition, it is the Civil War, it is World War II, it is the Vietnam War, and it's baseball. Baseball is America's pastime. Uh, as we are continually told, it's a game that is about tradition and, uh, you know, slowing things down and enjoying, um, you know, all that's good. I mean, obviously, it does not actually always be a celebration of all that's good. Uh, mm. Quite often the opposite. But um, it is the old, the older statesman of all the games and, you know, in comparison to its brash upstart nephews, uh, you know, ice hockey and... Um, uh, you know, American football and, and basketball is kind of a more regal sport. It is, uh, you know, there there seems to be a kind of a barrier to entry in the sense that you have to you have to take on some understanding of the game and knowledge of the game before you can kind of give. Or it's not quite as accessible as the others. Therefore, to attain an understanding of it is 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 seen as kind of more earned, I guess, which is another way of saying snobbery. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it's it, there is a very similar feel to baseball than there is to cricket that English people have, in the yeah. sense that it seems a very English thing, and it's specifically English, and it's you know tied into the fact even if you don't like cricket, you understand that you know the thump of uh, uh, you know leather on willow on the village green and all that stuff. Even if you've never been to a village green and even like see, you're aware of the cliche that that's a thing. Yes. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think the idea that people are into cricket are people who kind of have a weird a kind of like sense of humor, but also, um, obsession with small details, which carries mm-hmm. across to baseball. There's this kind of obsession with, with kind of like minutia and things. And in both games there, there, there is often very little happening, but there's a lot yeah. happening at the same time. There's this kind of chess on grass type uh feel to it but yeah it's it is indelibly woven into the fabric of american society and whilst we are two englishmen talking about this or you know you're kind of a mudblood half welsh or whatever (laughs) i don't know whatever you're saying like (laughs) 
like it, it has a global appeal, but has literally no interest in expanding that um, mm. beyond markets it can mine for talent, such as Latin and Central America. And Japan to a lesser uh, yeah, extent. Yeah, Japan to a lesser extent, yeah. But yeah, it's it, like it's never been particularly interested in you know building a world brand. Uh, we're getting a, a couple of games in London next year. Oh, cool. At the Olympic Stadium. Um, mm. I'd go and see it, but it's the Yankees versus the Red Sox, which is essentially <laughs> gonorrhea versus syphilis um, <laughs> for someone like me. But yeah, uh, I'm. that is, what, 10, 15 years after the first NFL game here? After the talk yeah. of like dragging an NFL team to be permanently based in London, um, and you know, looking to you know globally expand all of those games, but baseball is seems so specifically American. No one's ever seemed bothered. Mm. Yeah, it's it's strange. And also, that's the, like the old joke being like the World Series is played between one and a bit countries mm. <laughs> because it's between America and Toronto. <laughs> Like those, those are the the countries in the world competing for you know the the World Series of baseball. Mm, and there was that there was the a, a urban myth that you know the World Series is named after the newspaper that originally sponsored it. Um, mm. That's bollocks. If anyone tells you that, that's just not true. It is about boasting about being champion of the world, even in mm. a sport where at best two. It was it was America versus Toronto. And Montreal, Montreal. Yeah. <laughs> that was at best. That's what happened, um, and that's just not a competition at all. Yeah, if the Raptors ever decide to relocate somewhere, then you know even that slim pretense, unless they move to like Mexico City or whatever. Mm. Uh, Although the Raptors are a basketball team, Ed, oops. so they would they would have to really relocate. They'd have yeah. to change fucking sport. Blue Jays, of course. I meant to that's say it. Then my uh, my best day comebacks job. as well. My 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 day job bleeding in there a little bit, <laughs> having to having to know the names of basketball teams. Yeah, Ed is a point guard for the Toronto <laughs> Raptors. <laughs> yeah, so my mistake was especially bad. <laughs> and that commute, Jesus Christ, yeah, it's a crusher. <laughs> Back to baseball, <laughs> Jesus Christ, that was a uh, yeah a uh, trip down the light, fantastic. Yeah, so I think uh, also in terms of why I think baseball is kind of like a uniquely cinematic sport is like because it does have like you say it's like chess on grass it kind of has those long years in between things happening or things happen but it's really all about building up to maybe getting a home run or maybe you know stealing a base and someone coming in uh, or, or walking someone in or whatever so there is lots of space there for inter-character relations between people like people shit talking each other on the mound and things like that or at the bases which you don't really have in like american football mm. because you're just you know they talk to each other when they're uh huddled up and then they crash into each other and then they maybe they pass and then there's like stuff happening in the locker rooms it feels like there's a lot more space in baseball as a game for characters to actually sit and have conversations and that's why you know in literally every like dramatic baseball movie, there's a point at which the coach kind of calls a times out, time out, and they run up and you know they have a conference on the the mound with the pitcher, and that's the really dramatic thing about what they need to do to get this guy out and things like that. Mm. And there's not really the same kind of opportunities in the other sports, or or if it is, it's like everyone like comes together and it becomes a bit more chaotic. Mm. There's also to baseball like somewhat of a kind of an elegance and a poetry to how people talk about it. 
you ever yes. listen to like Vin Scully, who was the uh, the guy who commentated on the LA Dodgers for like fifty years? And when I say that, people find that weird in in Britain or outside of America that you know a team will have a commentator that commentates on all their games, and he did it mm-hmm. solo every game for decades. And his voice and the way he describes the action and the way that they describe, you know, all these weird kind of like um, like little phrases and idioms they use to describe things, all of which have, you know, bled into everyday usage, stepping up to the plate or coming mm. from left field or covering the bases or something being in your wheelhouse. These are all baseball terminologies, ballpark figures. They're like figure, they're, these are phrases that people use, but they're all they all come from... Uh, American life and baseball and kind of filtered through and, and, and very much um, uh, when people talk about it, like if you watch Ball Durham, for example, that's a great mm. example. When they're talking yeah. about baseball, it feels poetic. It feels, it also feels kind of dirty and grubby and like, you know, it, there's, there's, you don't get that in the same sports in other sports. You can get that the same. And like, I always wonder whether there aren't um, that many good, Football movies, and when I say football, I mean soccer, for all you uh, international listeners. And I remember a friend of mine once said, like, the only way you could ever capture the drama of a football match is just to film a football match. Mm. It's 90 minutes long, you know what I mean? You can just film it, and that captures all the drama of that. And that is the perfect answer, because there's no better drama than watching the football match unfold, watching a dramatic recreation of that drama just feels hollow whereas Mm. you you seem to be able to work way more around other sports because they're i don't know less kind of intense and always happening like you said about the mound visits the 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 scene in ball durham where they have the mound visit and they're talking to lash larue and then they get everyone starts to join the catcher goes up crash goes up all the other characters come up and then it goes from like what's wrong with the picture to everyone else has got a problem someone's wife's cheating on them you know he's got a problem with his his ankle whatever and there's just this kind of like man support session which is what is happening on the mound um like this kind of little sewing circle and that's like an inherently funny situation that from within the game but you couldn't imagine that happening like you know at a throw-in yeah. <laughs> in football it's like it doesn't quite have the same thing um mm. which is you know perhaps what lends it uh itself so well to having you know, a lot to say. But I, also, there's a lot of good kind of literature, like baseball literature. The Book of the Natural, mm. for example, is, you know, considered pretty good. Pafco at the Wall by uh, Don DeLillo. These are all good baseball books that can add to that kind of, you know, oceans of depth that have been written and talked about baseball, which makes it, again, more and more kind of like reflective of the American experience, which makes it more and more... Mm. Yeah, and I think also one of the things I think that allows baseball to kind of like be used as kind of in 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 movies is that unlike like you say about like football slash soccer, you know, like that's a game of constant movement. Like people are constantly moving around. It's very dynamic, and like on the one hand, you know, that lends itself to I guess set pieces pretty well. But like you you couldn't really mimic the feeling of a full game that way Mm. whereas baseball has a lot of quiet moments so it's really easy to boil a game of baseball down to like six crucial plays that then you can use as a source of drama for 
you know, a, a 10, 15 minute chunk of a movie. Whereas like, it's kind of not, I don't think it's easy to do that for, uh, for, for proper football, but certainly American football. I think that is even more of a problem because that's just a game of, it's a game of inches. It's kind of hard to really boil down that into any kind of like compelling, like one or two plays that really make a difference, except for, you know, the last second throw from the quarterback that allows them to score, you know, which is basically how pretty much every game in Friday Night Lights ends up. (laughs) (laughs) Like any game that they win is usually because uh, Saracen happened to make that throw. But also in, I was just trying to think of good football movies and like the, the, the two that kind of came to mind immediately was like offside the Jafar Panahi movie which is all about, you know, Iranian girls trying to watch a football match and Bend It Like Beckham, which is, you know, about an Indian girl being told that she can't play football and going and play it. And it, I thought it was interesting that, you know, there aren't that many games about football that kind of tackle it just as this is about the sport. Mm. But it's very easy to take, okay, let's look at the people who are kind of like marginalized within what people think the sport is about or what the sports fan base broadly is which is like white men Mm. and make it about people being like hey i want to participate in this which i think also is something that you also see in a lot of great baseball movies like uh one a great one in recent years and one that you and i've talked about uh, a lot is sugar Mm. by uh ryan fleck and anna bowden the aforementioned uh, directors, which is very much about using baseball as a vehicle through which to talk about the immigrant experience in America. Mm. Yeah, and it's tough for other sports to do that because they always fall between two stalls. If you think about, mm. you know, it, you know, for someone who lives in Sheffield, it's hard to say this, but when Saturday comes, is a terrible movie because <laughs> it's a bad sport movie and it's mm. not a very good look at you know issues in a social realist sense like alcoholism or like you know the struggles of the working classes it's just a shitty movie whereas something like you say sugar uses baseball and uses baseball dramatically as well it's not just in the background it's essential Mm. to the story it's essential to the characters it's essential to what's happening um but use it to break down the immigrant experience in america and kind of uh in a fascinating way that you know so many um, young, hopeful, um, you know, kids are brought from all over the world um, uh, to America to, you know, forge a career in baseball. And the ones that don't make the cut, well, who gives a fuck? They're just, you know, tossed on the scrap heap and end up doing whatever. When you kind of, at the end of Sugar, you kind of find the, you know, whole leagues of, of kind of people who weren't quite good enough uh, to make the cut, just, you know, trying to get by and playing for what they're playing because they like playing, you know? Mm. Um, and yeah, the idea that that can, that film can use baseball as a, a prism through which to explore the immigrant experience, but also be a scathing indictment <laughs> of baseball and, mm. uh, you know, America's um, uh, lackadaisical approach to support networks <laughs> for people yeah. who uh, find themselves in those situations. Yeah. I think, it's it's interesting as well because I can't remember. Do they say in Sugar what team he's drafted for or what farm team he's meant to be playing for? Is um, it like a real uh, team? The farm team's made up. Yes. Yeah. Because like I think that's that's very 
indicative as well of the power that a lot of the teams have in kind of controlling their image and and this is certainly true as well of the like the nfl which i don't know if you ever saw the movie draft day Mm, i did not uh, see that movie kevin costner directed by ivan reitman not a particularly good movie in any way and one of the many reasons why it's not particularly good is it's wholly sanctioned by the nfl and it has real teams real stadiums and every time they go to a different stadium to show one of the managers that Kevin Costner is going to be talking to. There's like a 15 second montage of dramatic helicopter shots around their like sparkling stadium. I was kind of like, okay, this isn't going to have any particular insights in the way the NFL works. And like, I think sugar being as strong uh, an indictment as it is of the way in which baseball and you know by extension american capitalism choose people out is uh it's, it's something that could only really happen because they basically say okay we're going to use made-up teams because uh if we use real teams this movie's not going to be made mm, yeah or like in eight men out which is a uh, ah, yes. amazing uh baseball yep. movie they're all kind of real teams because historical documents talking about the the, the black socks sorry, the Chicago White Sox, but called the Black Sox because they threw the World Series in Mm. 1919, I'm going to say. It was old times, don't worry about it. The date's not important. (laughs) Um, But yeah, they use that baseball and and the idea of telling this historical story, but also to not just say, oh God, there are a bunch of players who... Um, you know, through the World Series, aren't they disgraceful? Because you know they're they're in the wrong. They use that to. Uh, well, obviously, John Sayles made the movie, so he uh, kind of doesn't normally shy away from social commentary. We're talking no. about uh, you know how owners were, you know, grinding the players into the ground and not paying mm. them anywhere near the amount of money they should have been making. Kind of forcing. In, I mean, obviously, the players were complicit in this, but like you know, they we forced the players into a situation where someone came along with a wedge of money and just said throw this game yeah they ain't really gonna say no are they it's gonna be very difficult yeah and it it, it being more about the kind of the the kind of higher powers at work and and kind of investigating the kind of abuses of power there yeah and that's one of the many reasons it's great and uh, again like you say it's easy for them to say to tell the story as it was and use real names and real teams because they're saying hey this was terrible a hundred years ago uh, and like anyone who infers the game's still crooked now uh, is to- is totally not on me for doing that. So you know, I can I can just retell history in that way. Yeah, it was interesting. That film came out just before what is widely known as the steroid era uh, kicked mm. into uh, into uh, gear. Even though the steroid era has been going for quite a long time, because even those great players from the olden days were off their tits on amphetamines to keep playing, like through injuries and all this kind of stuff. All those great players. Uh, your, your roofs, your Gehrigs, and all those lot, those kind of golden era people that are held up in such high esteem, they were, uh, yeah, they were all on drugs. Hmm. I wonder if the, that's a reason why we haven't really got a good, a great movie about steroids in that respect, because that was like a huge scandal. But also, like, it's one that maybe they don't want people looking into too much because, like, everyone's record will have an asterisk, an asterisk next to it. Yeah, I think... Uh, the, if you the, really start digging into it. Yeah, the, the problem with uh, baseball is, like, the players' unions um, mm. are very strong, um, which yeah. is why doping was uh, out of control in the first place because the, the, you know, the unions, just, they didn't want 
people to be tested as much in, or in, in such a way that they would be discovered because they were all on drugs. <laughs> and um, I think the, there was a book came out just at the height of it. We was kind of, the MLB was like, oh, you know, we think there's some problems, but, you know, it's limited to a few individuals. Those individuals happen to be like hitting like a million home runs a season and, and would, you know, absolutely huge guys and then um arms the size of grapefruits yeah exactly there was a player i think his name was jose canseco he wrote a book Uh, called juiced Mm -hmm. and he was a player who would either just retired he was about to retire and he was like yep we're all fucking loaded (laughs) (laughs) we are just injecting anything and no one cares uh because there's lots of home runs and people are watching in huge numbers and it's kind of just being kind of phased out now. But like, I always thought that like a a real kind of like uh, um, kind of really exciting dynamic film based on Juiced, which is a very salacious book. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I'm knowing Mr. Conseco's uh, character. I think there's a lot of hot air in there as well. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it would be a, you know an incredible uh, adaptation. But I don't know. Maybe the MLB is not ready for it yet because you couldn't say. Oh yeah, um, Griff uh, McGuire of the uh, Bolorado Cockies. Uh, <laughs> he hit like it would be like that Japanese baseball meme from that, mm-hmm. Jap- that Japanese baseball game. Um, all the players would be called that. Um, yeah, yeah, cause to, to protect the uh, the innocent, you'd have you you need like in Moneyball, you need the uh, you need the actual people because that they're the important people. Mm. You need the names. Yeah. Yeah, I think Moneyball is also like that's that's probably one of the better like the last really great baseball movie that we've had. Not that there haven't been good ones in the intervening years, but it certainly feels feels like the last one to really permeate the culture in a huge way. In part mm. because it it I guess wasn't so sporty in you know, and and so I think that's why it kind of gained a lot of traction with uh, you know, like I know a lot of cinephiles who don't know a single thing about baseball who just love moneyball because it's all like dramatic conversations about statistics but you know kind of depicted in a way that feels you know really compelling even though like the realm in which it's happening could not be further from you know the experience or knowledge of of people who uh, only experience it through movies Mm, with or without baseball man people are horny for maths (laughs) you know what i mean yeah yeah uh, and also in terms of like uh, to bring it back to Brockmire, I was also thinking about how there seems to be an uptick in shows being made, which are about like I guess the low rent or the the, the really kind of like backwater aspect of baseball, because obviously that's about a, that's a show about a former MLB announcer who ends up kind of being. Uh, destroying his career uh, on air by getting drunk and kind of going on a huge rant about after he finds out that his wife's been cheating on him and then ends up like years later as a PA announcer for a a minor league team. And then you also have Eastbound and Down, which Mm. is about uh, a star pitcher who destroys his career and ends up kind of being kicked back and becoming, you know, just a teacher at a school he hates and then kind of kind of trying to claw his way back to the life that he once had. Uh, and I think it's it's interesting that we're getting them now that the sport, while still fairly popular and, you know, like the World Series always gets really good ratings, is perhaps not as central as it once was. And also, like, we've had so many movies that are about the, you know, venerating the myth of baseball, um, 
that maybe more people are saying, hey, we need more Bull Durham's and less Field of Dreams. Yeah, even though Field of Dreams is a good movie. It is um, very good. But yeah. But in, the... in, in, on the scale of like gritty, hard scrabble reality of baseball to mythologizing it as like the soul of America, it's, it's very much towards the latter end of that scale. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's, it's weird that it, it seems much easier for them to do, you know, do the Field of Dreams thing over and over again because Costner himself has done two or three of those isn't it what's the mm. the love of the game I think he did mm. Sam Raimi yeah Sam, weird. Well, weird director has picked for that one <laughs> yeah but the sandwich between I want to say the quick and the dead and the gift like maybe, the, maybe that, yeah that that run before he then you know became Mr. Blockbuster with Spider-Man mm. yeah weird but I guess I guess he's probably like one of those guys who just grew up at the right age to just be super into baseball as a kid and just being like, I really want to make a baseball movie. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose they've all got to do it at some point. Yeah. There's, I mean, there was this weird baseball movie I saw once where like there was an opera singer who was out singing the national anthem. And then at halftime, a cop knocks him out (laughs) and then, uh, then impersonates an umpire and then uh, th- that's why I didn't realise. I'm describing, of course, a scene from Nicky Gunn. But a lot of those players in that are real baseball players. Like big, oh. And the LA Angels, are, yeah, actually, they're real teams. It's the Angels and and um, the Oakland Athletics. So whilst the MLB mm. is very concerned of preserving its image, they will let them be used in Nicky Gunn, where the, the ends with you know, a bench-clearing brawl with people being piled up high, someone's mauled by a tiger, and (laughs) Reggie Jackson gets a gun and tries to shoot the Queen. (laughs) Yep, and someone gets marching banded to death. Yes. uh, uh, That's also something that I think is an interesting thread throughout, really, cinema history and baseball history, is, like, there's a, a lot of baseball players who end up playing themselves in things like most famously like Jackie Robinson played himself in the Jackie Robinson story. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Babe Ruth played himself in, I want to say a couple of comedy shorts, like very early on in his career. I'm pretty sure there's like clips of them in, in baseball. Uh, and then obviously uh, the aforementioned Jose Canseco and a bunch of other steroid abuses allegedly, and in some case proved uh, played themselves on an, a classic episode of the Simpsons. Uh. So, <laughs> There, there are ones which are perfectly happy to, uh, yeah. There are there there are instances in which the MLB are like, yeah, sure, go and go and have fun, uh, as long as you don't bring uh, dishonor upon the sport. Mm. Yeah, Kurt Russell, also famously a, a baseball player, yes. likes to act. Yep, <laughs> most most known for his baseballing, mm. <laughs> being a designated hitter with the uh, the Portland Mavericks in the uh, the mid seventies. That is, uh, you know, if we're talking about great baseball movies, the documentary The Battered Bastards of Baseball, I believe it was a recommendation of mine on this very show about two years ago. That's on Netflix. Mm. That's fucking brilliant. Uh, yeah. If you want to see the down and dirty end of, of uh, baseball, it's really kind of Bull Durham, the documentary, really. Yeah, I think one of the things that's uh, that I think is really great when you look at the, the contrasting images of baseball is, like, when you look at the MLB you do really have like these guys who are all like in peak physical condition, sometimes aided in some <laughs> ways in that, that endeavor. But generally like they're all people who say, okay, those guys look like athletes. And then you look at like the minor league teams or the, the, the kind of the, the smaller end of things you are people who says, Oh, that guy just looks like he drives a bus or something, you know, mm-hmm. like they're not necessarily the kind of like peak physical fitness. And I think that's, that's one of the things that kind of ragtag element of it is something that's very appealing 
mm. about a lot of baseball stories that focus on the smaller end when again in something like uh eastbound and down where you have like the one guy who's like really good and kind of has uh is, is trying to like pull the rest of the team along with him mm, i think you're being very kind to some professional baseball players but say they're like <laughs> athletes ed that, that's pushing it some, well some, some of them just need to hit and they don't need to run yeah so. Yeah, yeah. Some some of those jobs are very uh, precision tall, shall we say? Mm. They don't need to do much else um, in the in the physical physical realm. Uh, okay, um, we're going to end this episode as we end all of our episodes with shot versus shot recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and that we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as, Matt, as well. Matt, what would you like to recommend for the listeners this week? Ah, uh, yeah, following on from your recommendation um, a couple of weeks ago, where you recommended the TV show Glow, I'm going to recommend. Mm. The documentary on which that television show is based, the true story of the glamorous Ladies of Wrestling, a TV show that ran uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. And whilst the documentary itself um, is not particularly, shall we say, in-depth or in any way kind of investigative, it is very enjoyable. And if you like the show, it provides um, much-needed context to... Um, what the women who were doing that were doing every week. They were, you know, really risking life and limb doing that. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's one bit of the documentary I had to physically turn away from. As regular mm. regular viewers will know, I'm a very squeamish man. Um, and, yeah, did not enjoy that, actually. Like, yeah, had to put my fingers in my ears and turn <laughs> away until it had gone. Um, but, yeah, it's on Netflix, much like the, uh, the television show itself. If you, I'd probably recommend watching the TV show and then watching the film. Um, like I say, it's pretty lightweight, but it's uh, pretty feel good, and um, yeah, fills in a lot of those gaps uh, for stuff that you didn't know. If you want to see how it really went down, then that's uh, my recommendation for you this week. Cool. I'm going to recommend uh, a movie that just went into sort of wide release here in the US, and will hopefully be expanding in the weeks ahead. It's Boots Riley's "Sorry to Bother You," which is a kind of very uh, exciting and strange comedy satire about a telemarketer played by Lakeith Stanfield who becomes fairly successful because he is able to deploy a very convincing white voice when talking to people on the phone, which then causes him to rise in stature in this this company that he works for. But that's really kind of just the basic selling point for a film that kind of does a whole bunch of things. Like it's a... a kind of wonderful anti-capitalist pro-union kind of uh, polemic uh, in the best possible sense. It's a movie that tackles the kind of the way that capitalism is largely built both historically and now on the kind of under-recognized and exploited labor of black people. It is about kind of like the power of corporations. It's about the media. It's a very expansive film in terms of what it's trying to do but it's also like a comedy that's over and done with an hour and 45 minutes it's kind of crazy that boots riley does everything that he does over the course of the the movie and uh, it's not 
Perfect is the first movie. Boots Riley, for people who uh, don't know, is a uh, is is the is a musician primarily. He has been the front man and kind of creative genius behind a, a rap group called The Coop for twenty five years. Great group out of Oakland. Uh, everyone should check out their albums. Uh, if uh, if you're going to have to wait a while to see Sorry to Bother You, which I think a lot of people may end up being because I don't think it has a UK release date yet. Uh, it's vibrant. It's visually very inventive. There's this recurring gag they do where every time Lakeith Stanfield is on the phone with someone, his desk falls through the ceiling of the room that they're in. So he's in the room with the person he's on the phone with, which is uh, a very kind of visually fun bit of business to kind of play with. It's a, a movie that really prizes visuals over just verbal gags. And some of the gags are really, really funny. Uh, and it takes a, a lot of big leaps that uh, I wasn't expecting and that take the movie into some really unexpected places. And yeah, it's just, it's a really vibrant and exciting movie. One of the most exciting movies I've seen all year. And I think uh, everyone should see it because I want, uh, I really want to see what Boots Riley does, does next. Wicked. Um, that was one that we picked out at the start of the year, wasn't it? That we were very yeah. excited about. And it's good to see that it's doing so well. And uh, I've got my fingers crossed that it actually arrives uh, on this side of the pond. Hmm. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, all the usual places. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.